has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It is my privilege to welcome you to All Saints Presbyterian Church on this Good Friday. In a moment, you will be invited to enter into our service. I hope by this time you have received an order of service. But first, a few comments about Good Friday and our Good Friday service are in order. Admittedly, there is no command in all of Scripture to observe this day as Good Friday. However, there are numerous calls or invitations throughout the Bible to reflect upon the works of the Lord, to pay attention to the wondrous things that the Lord has done. There can be a healthy goodness in reflecting upon the fulfilled promise of the Father in the provision of his beloved son. Such reflection is what we shall do once again this evening. On the cross, Jesus uttered seven distinct statements. Over the past number of years, on Good Fridays, at All Saints, we have taken these statements in turn. One each year. This year, we come to the 
Seventh statement, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. From Luke chapter 23. This seventh statement, curiously, comes after Jesus declared, it is finished. Those words, it is finished, did not finish the sayings. Good Friday services in various churches and traditions vary. Some traditions hold the service at 12 noon, the time at which both death and darkness arrived. Others wait until the evening so that we may have evening and then tomorrow a morning, a new day. Obviously, ours is in the evening. Some Good Friday services have no music at all, no singing. We've already had music, and we shall be singing. In many traditions, the tapestries that adorn the church are or can be veiled. In some churches, the communion table is completely covered. Usually and rightly, there is no communion. But something now needs to be made clear. This service is not a reenactment. It is a reflection, a time of meditation. We will join together and we will do this as those who belong to the risen Lord. What happened in history... And where we are in history cannot be denied. We cannot come to a service like this and pretend that the Christ has not come and lived and died and rose from the dead and ascended and rules as king. So thus tonight we shall hear and wonder and sing and meditate on this blessed Good Friday. I direct your attention now to the service program. And I invite you to stand to receive this, our call to worship. We gather on this Good Friday in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Blessed be the name of the Lord our God. Who redeems us from sin and death. For us and for our salvation, Jesus Christ was obedient unto death. Even Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written... I will lead us now in a collect prayer, a prayer over all, and then after this, I shall invite you to kneel for a time of silent prayer, and then we shall pray together, but you'll hear more on that in a moment. At this time, please join me as I lead us in prayer. Almighty God, we ask you to graciously behold this, your family, the church, 
for whom our Lord Jesus Christ was contented to be betrayed and given up into the hands of the wicked and to suffer death upon the cross. Behold us, lift up the light of your countenance upon us and give us peace. We ask this through Jesus who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit now and for all time. And all of God's children said, Amen. Amen. At this time, if you are able, I invite you to kneel for a time of private confession of sin, and then we will join together in a corporate confession. While still kneeling, let us join our voices together and pray together. O Lord, because of Jesus, the Savior of the world, we are assured of your mercy and grace in forgiveness. We thank you for your promise and your pardon. We offer all of this in Jesus, looking to him, for he is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at your right hand, ever living to make intercession for us. And amen. You may, be, you may stand. Our assurance of pardon will be a responsive assurance of pardon. Why? Our Lord speaks and allows us to respond in return. So thus, our assurance of pardon today, more than a mere declaration, will be a responsive statement. I will begin. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But he was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
Amen. You may be seated. Because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. I saw my first funeral procession in the 1960s. It was a long string of cars with their headlights on, even in the daytime. All driving slowly, a quiet, seemingly somber parade of some sort. At the head of the procession was a large vehicle. And to my young eyes, it looked like a large and fancy station wagon or some kind of limousine. All the rest of the traffic on the road at that time had stopped. They even pulled over. This line of vehicles had the road all to themselves. The procession snaked slowly past us. My parents explained to me that someone has died and these people were likely going from the church to the cemetery for a burial. I was also told that the large vehicle in front of the procession was a hearse and that the body of the person who had died would be inside that vehicle. It was as if the community had paused. And this made sense. A pause had occurred for that citizen, a neighbor, for that person whose body was in that big vehicle. It made sense for a pause to be acknowledged by others, respectfully, knowing that a similar end is in the script for all of us. The bell will toll, and when it tolls, it cannot be unrung. So rather than the constant press and push and mad dash of every day huffing and puffing, there was a moment, a breather, a breath, for breath had departed from one. The sayings of Jesus from the cross, as with all of Jesus' words, are worthy of meditation. That funeral procession of some 50 years ago was instructive, even though I did not know the person who had died, whose body was being transported in that large vehicle. There were no verbal cues There was nothing verbal. 
However, sometimes loved ones are given the privilege of receiving or giving final words. Final words from or to the person who is dying. Last words. Last words. When the last words of a dying person are uttered, usually there's a leaning in to hear, a lending of the ear, an appropriate pausing, ceasing, and silencing of oneself. Attention is given to behold and to listen. This evening we pause, we lean in to hear, we lend an ear to attend to these last words from the final word himself. And tonight we will offer two meditations. Pastor Jeffrey will offer a meditation, dying words, and I will offer one called living words. But first... Let us stand together and sing, Be Pleased to Save Me, an insert in your service program. Amen. You may be seated.
I wonder if I might lead, lead us in prayer as we come to meditate on the Word of God. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, please open our eyes to see new and wonderful things in these familiar dying words. And as we meditate upon them and upon the one who spoke them, lead us into closer communion with him and deeper love for him and more wholehearted faithfulness to him. And we pray in his name. Amen. I want to begin, if I may, by posing for you a puzzle which arises from reflection on the manner of Jesus' death, more specifically, the way that he approached it, and the contrast that we see with his followers. Jesus himself had told his followers that when they were insulted and persecuted and slandered, they were to rejoice and be glad. So wrote John Stott in his wonderful book, The Cross of Christ. He goes on to describe a number of different ways in which Jesus' followers and disciples and later Christian leaders faced death. Let me read a short section or two. His apostles, leaving the Sanhedrin in the book of Acts with backs bleeding from a merciless flogging, were actually rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering for his name. Ignatius, the later bishop of Antioch in Syria at the beginning of the second century, on his way to Rome, begged the church there not to attempt to secure his release, lest they should deprive him of the honour of being martyred. He said, let fire in the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let breaking of bones and tearing of limbs and the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, if only I may gain Christ Jesus. A few years later, the Bishop Polycarp, 86 years old, Bishop of Smyrna, refused to escape death, either by fleeing or by denying Christ. Both options were open to him. And he was burnt at the stake. And as the fire was lit, he prayed, O Father, I bless thee that thou hast counted me worthy to receive my portion among the number of martyrs. Even the first known British martyr, St. Alban, had been beaten and suffered patiently, nay, rather joyfully, for the Lord's sake, before being beheaded. So the disciples of Christ seem throughout the ages to be capable of following their Lord's instruction to approach death with either stoic calm or joyful hearts, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for Christ, because Christ had told them that that's how they should approach death. And the puzzle is that when you contemplate the way that Jesus approached his own death, you discover, as he prayed on the Mount of Olives, 
He withdrew from his disciples. This is in Luke chapter 22. Knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Far from cheerfully embracing death, he asked his father, if there's any other thing that's possible, any other way forward, let that be so and not this. Before submitting himself to his father's will. And Luke goes on to explain, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling on the ground. You see the conundrum, don't you? Jesus' disciples faced death with joyful hearts, rejoicing and celebrating the privilege they had. And Jesus himself, who told them to do it, well, clearly wasn't following his own instructions. Or was he? You see, like all biblical puzzles, this one, if we're willing to dig a little bit deeper, has the potential to unravel some rich mysteries for us and indeed to shed light on the character of Christ's death and its significance. Jesus' dying words in particular, the the words that Pastor Neil just read, the words that are recorded for us in Luke 23, shed remarkable light on the uniqueness of the death of Jesus. There's a couple of things I want to highlight. First, you notice, and you can see this in the order of worship you have, in verse 44 at the beginning of this reading, It's about the sixth hour, so the middle of the day, bright sunshine in Palestine, in the uh, gently rolling hills around Jerusalem, sunny day, and there was darkness over the whole land until three o'clock in the afternoon. While the sun's light failed, And of course, I have no doubt that, in fact, the sun's light was darkened, who knows how, solar eclipse and whatever else. But, of course, here, as with all the scriptures, we are to read them in the light of what the rest of the Bible says about this. And you don't have to look far. In fact, you can hardly move in the Old Testament prophets for, well, quite chilling statements about what darkness of this kind means. Let's just let Isaiah speak for a moment. We heard from him earlier. We'll hear from him again in a moment. But listen to what Isaiah says is meant by this kind of darkness. Isaiah chapter 13. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy the sinners from within it. For the stars of the heavens and the constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. You see the significance of the sun being darkened? It's the day of the wrath of the Lord. The day of the outpouring of the world's anger. Verse 11, when the Lord says, quote, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. You start to get a sense, don't you, of why Jesus might have realized that what he was about to encounter was not the same as that which his disciples embraced with such joy. This is the reason why Jesus approached his death with such horror, because he knew it was not just death that he approached. Again, we've heard from the prophet Isaiah already 
the chilling explanation for why, why the wrath of the Lord, why the fierce anger of the living God at all sin and iniquity should be directed at this man at this time, surely not for his own sins. This is the, this is the man who, like, even his enemies and his detractors for 2,000 years since have acknowledged, well, at least this man was a righteous man. But Isaiah chapter 53, we'll hear it again. He's borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, all of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we might add that the darkness that we ought to experience forever, he experienced for three hours in our place. Just to show us, just to illuminate, no, not to illuminate, what's the word? Deluminate. The certain destiny to which our sin and evil rightly consigns us and from which we've been delivered. He lived in darkness that we might rise in light. But the darkening of the sun speaks of more than that. I mean, if you just carry on going further back in the Bible, of course you realize that the darkening of the sun looks eerily like a reverse replay of Genesis chapter 1, doesn't it? In the beginning, God said, let there be light. I'm hearing a few nods and, oh yeah, I'm seeing this. And, and the, the stars and the heavenly lights were brought into being. And here you've got, it's almost like Genesis chapter 1 in reverse. Let there be darkness. Let the glorious creation of this wonderful world be stuck into reverse. Let everything good be undone. And you hear it actually in Jesus' dying words. Now you've got Genesis in your mind. Now you've got the creation narrative in your mind. Can you not hear in Jesus' words here, into your hands I commit my spirit? Well, of course, Jesus is breathing his last breath before his resurrection. Biologically, it's his last breath. Um, He's committing his life to God. Yeah, of course he is. Of course he's doing those things. But Genesis chapter 2, where we read those familiar words, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath. The Hebrew word is the same as the word for spirit. The spirit of life. And the man became a living being. And so, it's not just that the cosmos is being undone. It's not just that the fabric of creation is being torn apart. It's not just that what you're seeing is a reversal of the creation of every good thing. What you're seeing is in this man, Jesus Christ, he's, so to speak, embodying that undoing of creation in himself. Whereas God breathed life into the first Adam, the last Adam breathes out life from himself back to his father. And of course, a moment's reflection, maybe a few moments' reflection, highlights why this should be so. We've already seen, haven't we, that what the death of Jesus really is, is a death in our place. It's a death for us. I want to suggest to you that this is an undoing 
of creation for us. What our foolish and sinful lives and hearts do is to undo all the good things that God gives us. Isn't that right? Haven't you noticed that? You notice it in in your relationships from time to time. You notice that perhaps even in those relationships which mean so much to you, your words, my words, our words, have the capacity to undo so much good. And so we actually, in a small microcosmic sense, we we bring about an undoing of those good things the Lord has done. We, our words strain at the fabric of our relationships, our marriages, our relationships with our siblings and our parents. And so what's Jesus doing? He's saying, yes, that's what sin does. Sin is making a mess of the world. It's undoing God's good work of creation. I've got a better idea. I've got a better idea. Let me do that. Let me experience all the undoing of creation that our foolishness and sinfulness brings about so that we can rest not only in the status that he grants us, that the status of forgiven, having God's wrath turned aside from us, but we can actually begin again. Christ has done the tearing our lives and our relationships apart thing. He's been torn apart from his father. You don't need to be now torn apart from yours. You particularly don't need to be torn apart from yours. Because notice the thing right in the middle of this passage. What's the one thing? I asked Pastor Neil, are you going to mention this, brother? And he said, I wasn't going to mention it. I was like, great. Because I get to point out to you even before we hear about the living words, that the veil of the temple was torn in two. The door of heaven was, so to speak, kicked off its hinges and sent flying across the backyard by the one who dwells within it. So there need be no barrier now between us and him. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we thank you for the dying words of your Son, by which we see him enduring in himself that which was due to us and opening the path to you for us. Teach us to walk that path, we pray. For we pray in his name. Amen.
Amen. You may be seated. Our Lord Jesus Christ was citing the Psalms throughout the time on the cross. The first word from the Psalms, the supposedly final word, it is finished from the Psalms, and the ultimately final word from the Psalms. I will read to you now from Psalm 31, verses 1 through 5. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth." Living words, the spirit, the breath, the wind is to depart. Jesus breathes his last. His final breath will be taken, likely fluttering with the words, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. These are the words of a dying man. Yes, they are dying words. However, they are also living words. Into the Father's hands my spirit will go. There is a going. These are the best of final words. This is the hope of all the living as they face the inevitable end of life. The hope that the hands that hold the cosmos, the Father's hands, would receive us. Jesus speaks surely, into thy hands I commit my spirit. These are secure words. Upon death, after death, the greatest security and the most wondrous comfort would be the Father's reception. The Father's hands receiving you, receiving us. Many hands were raised to wound him. The Savior's own hands were outstretched and pierced and bloodied and suspended. Now the Son commits himself into the Father's hands. The Father's hands are not presented as hands of prevention or denial. The Father's hands are not hands which wave off or send away. The Father's hands are not hands of rejection. 
but rather they are hands of reception. Hands which also direct the choir of jubilation, singing of welcome, come into the joy of your Father. These are living words. These are words of hope. Jesus dies just as he lived. Fully entrusted to the Father, he now gives up his spirit, his life, in death, and in full confidence of the Father's reception. We should love these words. For our Lord Jesus has preceded us. And we get glimpses of this. The words of Asaph in Psalm 73. Even if my flesh and my heart may fail, my God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph also said, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Our Lord Jesus preceded us. The veil was opened. The path is present. He precedes us, his children. He died in our place. There are peaceful deaths and there are deaths of despair before each one of us is the ever-approaching, marching, hastening inevitability of death. How shall we die? In the sure confidence of the Father's receiving ready hands? Or not? In Christ who went before us, we can be assured of such a reception. Death is before each one of us. Harold Sankbile said it well, ever since Eden, life has been lived graveside. Now, in just a moment, we are going to sing, For I am Thine. But I'd like to stand before you and give you a little bit of a preparation for this. During 2020, much of the world was wrapped with concerns and opinions about the coronavirus. It is undeniable that some died from the virus while others died with it. Going now from the political to the personal, it was also noticeable in 2020 that many people were brought into consideration of their own mortality. Death is inevitable. This was true even if they didn't think the pandemic was one. 
In the aftermath of some of the COVID-19 concern, and prior to my stroke during that same year of 2020, there was one particular morning when I was upstairs in my office enjoying a bit of reading. My door was open and the sounds of the sanctuary piano were rising up from the sanctuary and traveled up the stairway and entered my open door. Miss Douglas was practicing at the piano. She was working on a tune that I had not heard before. Not uncommon. My reading included a three-stanza poem written by Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli penned this poem during the time of the bubonic plague, during a time when death was front and center and surrounding. Three stanzas, a poem about death and life. Dying words, living words. The piano practice continued, as did that developing tune. I walked down the stairs to listen more closely. Sanctified eavesdropping. My reading also included the events which surrounded the writing of that poem. The background. Zwingli had taken a break from his pastoral duties for a little bit of R&R. It was during the time of his R&R that the bubonic plague broke out and ravaged his city and congregation. He stopped resting and returned home into the midst of death to serve his flock and city. Three stanzas. Right when the inevitable and the eventual death made an earlier appearance in his city. Poem. Piano. Still listening to the developing tune, something clicked. The text and the tune were complementary. They worked well together, or so I thought. Three verses which we shall sing in just a moment. The first verse was about Pastor Zwingli contracting the plague himself. The illness of death latched upon him. The second verse was when he descended even deeper into his illness, knock, knock, knocking on death's door. And the third verse is about his merciful recovery. Miss Douglas and I consulted, working with both his text 
and her tune. After a few slight tweaks, the addition of a glorified refrain at the end, the giving of a title. Here it is. We shall sing, for I am thine. Let us stand. Amen. I ask that you please remain standing in just a moment as is most appropriate because we belong to the risen Christ. We shall end with a commissioning hymn, Mighty Lord, extend thy kingdom. But before that, here's a prayed, desired benediction for us all. Oh, Heavenly Father, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, we pray that you will set his passion, cross, and death between our judgment, excuse me, between your judgment and our souls. Do so now and in the hours of our death. Give mercy and grace to all the living, sure pardon and rest to your children. To your holy church, grant peace and concord. And to each one of us sinners, everlasting life and glory. 
We ask this because you are our loving Father, Christ, your beloved Son, and because of the gift of your Holy Spirit, and amen. Amen. Dear saints, you are dismissed into the evening to experience Holy Saturday and to ready yourselves for the jubilation of Easter Sunday. You are dismissed, and may the Lord bless you and keep you.